It's an incredible fight. We've been winning some battles, but the, the war to end the war on drugs is still ongoing. From Deergo Collective, this is Responsibly Different. Sharing stories of certified B corporations and our journey of joining them in leveraging business as a force for good. In this episode, you will learn and hear firsthand accounts about the impacts of the war on drugs on people of color. You will hear from hip hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy, Bernard Noble, who was formerly incarcerated for cannabis possession, and the executive director of The Last Prisoner Project, Sarah Gersten. If you're wondering what this has to do with B Corps, it's everything. A major tenet of the B Corp certification is the impact on community and bringing an intentional lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion to the work a business does. The criminalization of people of color via the war on drugs has locked many out of the ability to participate fully in our economy and political systems. That's why policies like Grayston's Open Hiring, Rhino Foods Payment Advance, and so many more are so important. If you're new to this podcast and you're scratching your head wondering what the heck a B Corp is, let me fill you in. Certified B Corporations are businesses that balance purpose with profit. To become certified, businesses must pass a rigorous third-party certification that measures how their policies and decisions impact their workers, the environment, customers, and their community. Some B Corps you're probably familiar with include Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, Stonyfield Organic, Grove Collaborative, Goody, and over 4,000 more in over 153 industries in 77 countries, all sharing one common goal to use business as a force for good. And that's what this podcast is all about. So on today's episode, we are highlighting a social enterprise that is not a certified B Corp, though we do encourage them to explore it. And they have a very important mission to liberate and support those that have been victimized by the war on drugs. Bernard Noble, after who the brand B Noble is named, was sentenced to over 13 years in prison and hard labor for possessing the equivalent of two joints of cannabis. Bernard served over seven of those 13 years and joins us in this episode to share what his experience was like. Joining Bernard is hip-hop and street art movement pioneer Fab Five Freddy. Fab has produced some of the most iconic music videos. You remember that Snoop Dogg video where Snoop turned into a dog? Yeah, that's Fab's work. He also hosted the program Yo! MTV Raps in the late 80s, which put hip-hop in the living rooms of not just Americans, but a global audience, and shot the ratings of MTV through the roof. Fab were instrumental in getting Bernard's sentence reduced. They've created this partnership to utilize the legalization of cannabis in serving and supporting the thousands of people that have been impacted by cannabis's prohibition. 10% of all sales from the B Noble brand are going right back to serving the formerly incarcerated and getting those incarcerated out of prison. One last note before we jump in. To honor Bernard's story, we felt it was really important to keep it intact as he tells it, which means we did not edit for language or content. If you have young listeners or folks that prefer not to hear explicit language or language that depicts violence and racism, Now would be a good time to hit the pause button and grab some headphones. We'll also have the transcript for this episode available in the show notes at responsiblydifferent.com if you prefer to read it rather than listen to it.
I'd love to kind of get us started. I'd love to hear about Be Noble and Bernard, your story and how you kind of all came together. It 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 was a it was a real crazy journey to to kind of fast forward it. I've I've been living here in New Orleans all of my life. And uh one day came where I had an incident where I was arrested for marijuana. I went through a rigorous process of being kept inside of the walls of the penitentiary here. Things got real dark for me, real, real dark. Um, Eventually, it started to start shedding light. I got picked up by a couple of programs on my sentencing called Whittaker. And it left from there and it progressed to me uh, in a full circle, having the opportunity to find out that Fab Five Freddy and this big hedge fund guy, Jason Flum, Dan Lowe, these guys got attached to my case. And that's when life turned around for me because little did I know uh, Fab and the team put some stuff together and the B Noble brand was invented and it's, it's just, it was amazing. And Fab was the guy that was behind the scenes that put the work together for me. So it's, it's just, it's, it's a real honor to be doing what I'm doing. And it's, it's because of this guy right here, you know, he get all the hype because that's, that's my man behind the brand. And, I don't have to watch him on TV no more. I know him. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Fab, how did you get involved uh, in Bernard's case? Well, I was making a film called Grass is Greener about the history of cannabis in America, its connection to music from jazz, which was born in where Bernard is also born in Louisiana, New Orleans. And I wanted to follow that story through all cutting edge American music. Cannabis has been a dominant part of all the cool, coolest people have all indulged in the plant. But then you have this incredible, heinous, um, barbaric criminalization, which was all racially motivated. And in doing the research for the film, I learned that because jazz was bringing people together from different ethnic backgrounds, racists did not want to see that happen. And so they came up with this whole demonization of cannabis the, the reefer madness era in the 20s and 30s. And this guy named Harry Anslinger, who was behind all of that, got cannabis criminalized in 1937. So I followed that whole story, but I needed to also look at the criminal justice situation, which has disproportionately affl- affected black and brown. And Bernard's case was one of several I just I looked at to focus in on to get the whole story. And that's how I then decided, I'd seen that Weedekit, that was a Vice show where the gentleman uh, that was hosting that show focused on Bernard's story, but Bernard was still in prison. So he was with with his family and it was a real moving, sad story. Keep in mind, this all happened to Bernard over two joints worth of cannabis and the mandatory minimum laws. Yes, he had been in some trouble before, all nonviolent possession cases, two joints worth of worth of weed gets him a 13 year sentence, hard labor. Um, And I just was like, this is the case. And so that was it. I focused in on it. And then after interviewing his family, if you see grass is greener, you'll see it's a very like touching emotional moment. 
Then we heard he got a parole, and I knew we were going to took the crew. We flew back to Louisiana to capture that moment of him walking out of prison, and that's how we first met. And that motivated me, a call to action, if you will, to want to really do something, be a part of the business, but also try to affect change. And been in touch with Bernard ever since. He walked out of prison, talking to him constantly, sharing these ideas, and uh, hooked up with Cure Relief, and now the product is on the shelves. It's amazing. And Massachusetts and Maryland right now. And by the way, there's no doubt that it's a relevant cause, but also the cannabis is fire. Like, it's really top shelf, not shake. Typically, when pre-rolls, they use the, the stuff that falls off of the plant when they're packaging up flour and all that other stuff. These guys are using the whole flour, the actual choicest bud. I went up to the facility in Massachusetts, in Boston over the weekend, blown away. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I know that uh, 10% of Be Noble proceeds go to two organizations that aim at undoing the damage done to people by the war on drugs. Can you tell us more about the mission of mass cultivated and changing perception? Yeah, these are two orgs. Um, mass cultivated is basically taking people from disadvantaged you know, situations, caught up in, in the hood, trapped in that un. Uh, and that's in that cycle of just, you know, um, trying to get out and they're pulling people up and out, training them to work in the cannabis field, teaching them how to how to be cultivators and doing all that stuff. So that's what Mass Cultivated is doing. And the organization in Maryland is doing something similar. They're working with people that have been incarcerated and kind of helping them get their feet under them, get back get records expunged. And so these are the first two states that we're in. But by the fall, Be Noble is going to be in every state that has legal cannabis. So we'll be looking and focusing on other organizations, helping uh, the formerly incarcerated nonviolent cannabis offenders get their lives together, get their records expunged. And once again, learn how to participate in this booming business. So that's the focus, and we're going to aggressively do that. Our audio got a little broken up here. So just to fill you in, Fab went on to talk about the role that Bernard will be playing within the Be Noble brand. Bernard is going to be speaking, um, going in prisons as an example of somebody that was victimized, but also giving that encouragement and helping, you know, people, because he could talk that talk. He went through that, through that hell that too many people, unfortunately, are trapped in as this now is becoming a multi-billion dollar business. I saw at the end, actually, of of your film, there were some really interesting stats that I feel like are important for folks to know. And Bernard, I'd love to hear your uh, kind of reflections on some of these pieces that in the year, Bernard, that you were released from prison, over $1.4 billion in tax revenue from legal cannabis sales uh, happened in the United States. And in that same year, over 600,000 people, predominantly people of color, were arrested for cannabis uh, possession. I'm curious your kind of your thoughts and insights as somebody who has has been victimized and, and part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that whole thing stems from uh, miseducation, being misinformed uh, is all is totally political. And I'm just excited. I'm so excited now 
to to be a part of something that I've been lied to, I've been beat up about, I've been put in a trap so they can make the profit off it. But now I have the platform. I don't feel bad about what they've done, uh, how they kept me in the dark and kept people misinformed. But now it then went full circle where it's my turn to uh, educate my people on the benefits, the truth about the plan. It's, it's not harmful, you know, and it's it's a really good feeling that I have a verse. Now, I don't have to hide. So all of the billions and billions of dollars that they made, I'm a part of it now. Um, I was a sacrifice for to be who I am today to share this with the people of color. And, and that's my mission. So I'm excited. Uh, they wanted to keep us out, keep us in the dark and remind me of the prisons, the shitholes that I was in. Um, they they totally believed in not educating people of color in prison. So I wasn't allowed to read books. I wasn't allowed to uh, educate myself in libraries because uh, they knew, just like Harry Anslinger knew, that if people learned how to read, people know the truth about the plan. We wouldn't be scared no more. So I'm that person now to bring the light to the whole scene and it's be no more, be gone. You know, I just want to add on top of what Bernard just said. I saw some response to some of the information we've been pushing out about his case and his story. And one of the comments that were made when people saw the post of how much time Bernard was given for two joints of cannabis. This is typically going on in a lot of Southern states. A lot of these same states where slavery was the, was the dominant moneymaker. Um, and, you know, this was the foundation that America was actually, unfortunately, built on black slave labor. And it's, it's sad that these things are still going on in the South. The fact that Bernard wasn't allowed to read. Slaves were not allowed to read and study and be, become aware. And Bernard, actually, it's amazing when he tells a story about, you know, if you've heard about Angola prison in Louisiana, it typically is described as one of the worst prisons in the country. Bernard explains how he wanted to go to Angola. And if you could just explain to them, Bernard, why you wanted to go from the prison you were in and go to Angola. Yeah, of course. So, you know, like I said, I have a I have a good understanding now about how politics uh, run, is running our country. Um, the the shithole that I was in is described as satellite camps. Uh, they refused us education because of knowing what we would do. So the places were so bad, I couldn't get pencils. I couldn't get markers. I couldn't get important letters. They wanted me with nothing that would help me educate myself to fight them. So I wrote to every warden, secretary in the state to try and get to the most treacherous, vicious place on the planet that we have for a prison in Louisiana is called Angola. But in Angola, I was going to be able to get 
education. I would have came out being a penitentiary paralegal, like I have friends right now that came from Angola. Robert Jones is a legal paralegal uh, attorney that came from Angola. Angola has the education for men and anybody basically that goes in there. You can you can really learn from it. But they wouldn't accept me because they said I didn't have enough time. Angola want to keep you there with the trades that they showed. So I begged to go to Angola where I knew I would have gotten some education. I could have got killed, but I wanted to go there to read and learn and and learn more about the politics that that runs prisons and and had their foot on our life. So. Yeah, it was for education purposes. I wanted to go to Angola. Two joints of cannabis, and and this is just one of too many stories that uh, people have to deal with. So once again, that's the motivation for the Be Noble brand is, of course, to take care of Bernard Noble and for him to be able to take care of his family, but also to donate to organizations that are fighting and raising the awareness. People just don't know. I didn't know. I mean, he told me they took him out to, to fields and literally wanted him to pick cotton. Bernard was like, no, you take me to solitary confinement. I will go to the hole and do, I don't know, he spits it out like how many, 120 days? A hundred, 120 days, you know, and again, that was those small prisons. We call them satellite camps. And, and Brev, you could just take a look at it. They swap us. They send us to their cousins. They send us to their neighbors. And it's like we look like a damn bunch of hurdles. So uh, when when I got there, I was I was drug out in a dark van. And, you know, when the doors open, people don't know modern day slavery is so up to date. We just didn't have a bunch of raggedy wagons and, you know, uh, whips, but they still have chains. And they got big old guns that have clips in them. So uh, they got me out to this big old wide place. I felt the van stop when the doors open, you know, because they got the windows blacked out. They don't want us to see the streets or nothing. When they opened the door, when I got out of the van, it was like I never seen snow before because it don't snow here. I see snow on TV. So when I got out of the van, it really looked like it was snowing to me because I saw a bunch of men of color sitting on buckets with rag tied on their head. It reminds me of like an old slavery picture of black men singing hymns on buckets. So he dragged me out the van and Redneck told me, he said, well, boy, and he called me a boy. <laughs> he called me a fucking boy. And when he told me that, about, about seven foot tall, big old Redneck. So I looked at him and it, we, he told me, you could get the picking. I say, pick what? <laughs> he said, that's goddamn cotton. Um, and I just respond with, boss, I got 14 years, basically, because it was a few months from being 14 years solid. It was 13 years and a third. So I was pushing 14 years to the max. And I told that man, you could take me to the whole because I'm not picking cotton. And they're so racist against people, color shit. He didn't hesitate. He dragged my ass to that van 
and he left me there for about an hour. But when he got me back to the jail, they threw me in the room and I learned to manipulate myself and how to live in a room that size of a bathroom for over 120 days. And that was my scheme when they wanted me to modern day slaverize myself. I say, oh no, player, I got 14 years. You could take me to the damn hole. So that was my crazy man thing that helped me make it through the prison because I refused to, to work like that. I got beat by them motherfuckers. They done slapped me upside my head. I, I'm hogtied when I when I get drunk in a room anyway. You know, so I took a few bruises, but I told them, you could beat my body, but you ain't going to turn me into no slave, boy. So I locked up in that little room and they didn't care about doing it. So I learned to love it. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, for sharing that with us. It's such a powerful story. And it's, I think it's so important for people to hear that th- that is still happening and that, and it's so pervasive in our country and, and incarceration rates and how it, I mean, it's so, it's so huge and it's so important for people to know about. I'm, I'm curious for, for both of you, what are some ways that we can work to kind of break down that system and work to make, because I think the other problem too is, okay, great. So like I live in Maine and we have, we've legalized recreational. I can go down to a shop and buy all the weed I want. Right. And it's totally legal and it's fine. And the majority of those business owners are white. I think it's like, I I can't remember where I read this, but I think it's like maybe 1% of uh, legal cannabis shops are owned by people of color. Right. What are, what are some ways that also knowing a lot of the folks who are listening might be business owners. What are ways that business owners and even people voting with their dollars when they go to spend money on marijuana, how can they ensure that they're supporting communities of color that have been historically, you know, disadvantaged by this very product that they're enjoying? Exactly. Well, that was once again, this is the motivation. You hear like a little snapshot of what Bernard dealt with for seven years 13 years sentence, hard labor. Now we know I didn't realize what hard labor meant in the South. They still have people picking cotton, using that prison labor. Uh, Too many companies do that. I guess the main, the first and most important thing is to be aware um, the coal campaign that we have and the messaging is be educated, be informed, be active, be noble, like literally and figuratively to kind of be aware and then reach out to your local politicians, to your representatives. Clearly here in New York, since my film has come out, and I'm proud to say that my film has had a bit of influence in New York now has legal cannabis. Um, Cassandra Frederick, who is now the director, the national director of Drug Policy Alliance. She was only the New York director when she was featured in my film. And as a New York lifetime resident, I didn't even know that people were getting kicked out of public housing. They can have their kids taken away over over cannabis. And so the fight was 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 relentless for a good number of years. And we finally got a vote. And I'm told we now have the most progressive cannabis legislation in the country where records will be expunged. There's a concerted effort to make sure that 50 percent of the dispensaries and the cultivation will be owned by people of color and those that have been disenfranchised by these cannabis laws. I mean, you know, this was the fight for a long time. Decades, people have been fighting (laughs) on the front lines to make these changes happen. And we've now joined that fight. 
So it's a unique situation where we're providing a, a quality product, high quality, no pun intended. Um, but also there's messaging on the packaging. There's a QR code. You can go to b-noble.com right now and get some more information. Um, we, we just launched a couple of weeks ago, but, but like we will be um, sharing information, giving people, uh, you know, uh, more info about what they can do. Um, hopefully what um, Bernard and I are planning is to have a, a screening at the White House. Um, we want to try to get an audience with our president, um, who I voted for, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and to try to raise the issues so that we can take cannabis. It's categorized in, in the federal schedule in the same category as heroin. Come on. Like when cannabis has real medical benefits. So we're fighting. Um, we, we just want people to be aware, to be knowledgeable and to kind of reach out to their representatives, find out more about what's happening in their districts. Obviously, in the Northeast, we, we've almost got every state legal, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maine, Rhode Island. We're doing well. But Bernard is in. Louisiana right now, and it's not good there. And other Southern states, Mississippi, whatever. So that's where the fight is. And once again, we 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 just joined in, sleeves rolled up, and we are good to go to uh, to battle until we can get the change that's needed. Awesome. Any advice for uh, Black business owners in the cannabis scene? Yeah, I mean, listen, like people are coming together. Like during the during the heavy parts of the pandemic, I was on the Clubhouse app quite a bit. And literally, it was an amazing to reach, to talk to people like um, the legendary cannabis cultivator entrepreneur Sherbinsky from out in L.A., who's pioneered next level strains like Sherbert. If you guys are real cannabis aware in the audience, you'll know. And these are what we call like legacy guys, the guys that have been down in the game for the long time that are now transitioning into the legalized business, but have the most incredible cannabis. Burner, who's responsible for the cookies brand. He's featured in my film as well, Talking. So there's been a great effort of legacy guys to come together to strengthen themselves, to get information we just were blessed to be able to make a partnership with Curaleaf, which happens to be like the biggest, what they call MSO, multi-state operator. And they realized these wrongs out there. This is why this product is also messages um, and the tip of an iceberg about how people can now get some information, get, a, you know, dive in deeper and become a part of this fight and this struggle and this awareness. I mean, the key thing is to be aware, like grass is greener. I've been a cannabis aficionado for a long time. I didn't realize some of the things that I found in the film, like how aggressive, I mean, even the use of the term marijuana was, was put in place to make cannabis sound more Mexican because it was states that bordered Mexico, um, Mexicans had been using cannabis and they wanted to give it this name marijuana to make it sound more exotic and to make it easier to focus on those people and the, and the, and the demonization of the jazz musicians way back in the twenties and thirties, like Louis Armstrong, uh, Duke Ellington, all of these people were uh, 
persecuted and hounded. So it's just an interesting story. When you get the info, you connect these dots and you go, oh, now I see what's been going on. Um, but we're, we've been, there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible fight. We've been winning some battles, but the, the war to end the war on drugs is still ongoing. Yeah. And, and, and I would just like to add on to what Fair was saying about how far the progress has came, but it's, it has a long way to go. Amazing. Dr. Bernard Noble, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Any final thoughts that you both want to impart uh, to listeners? Uh be real, be understanding. Uh, this is this is this is a time now to to take it serious and not be so hypocritical because that's my mission. I want to get to all the hypocrites and get them to rub this lotion on them and see you knew this a long time ago. And it's just time to know the truth. I want to get the truth out. Don't be scared of the truth. Let's be real and 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 just keep it moving. Yes, I I, I agree with everything that. Bernard said, I think people getting the right information is key because we've been denied. We've been lied to. They called it, the, you know, the, the gateway drug, like if implying if you smoke a joint, you know, you'll be shooting heroin and all that stuff. All that's been proven false misinformation. Yeah. On top of that, incredible medical benefits for each and every one of us. And um, it's a similar fight, but a much harder fight than alcohol prohibition was when you think about it, because this aspect of race, which is so unfortunate, has been connected to this struggle, to this fight, and the reason why this plant was criminalized. If you haven't seen Grass is Green and you'd like to have a sense of where this comes from, please watch the film on Netflix. And Be Noble is available right now, Massachusetts and Maryland, and by the fall will be available wherever fine cannabis is legally sold. After hearing Bernard's story, it felt critical that we educate and inform our audience on why this issue is so important. Because really, what we are talking about here are the tools of systemic racism and oppression. So I reached out to The Last Prisoner Project to help illustrate that point and deliver some context. Here is my conversation with the executive director of The Last Prisoner Project, Sarah Gersten. I asked her all about The Last Prisoner Project and why their work is so important. The Last Prisoner Project is a nonprofit organization dedicated to cannabis criminal justice reform. And what that means is that we really have one singular goal, which is to release every last cannabis prisoner from incarceration and to help them to rebuild their lives. Can you speak a little bit to the role that race and racism has played in the war on drugs? Yeah. So when you think back to the war on drugs as sort of the campaign that was launched by Nixon in the 1970s and sort of doubled down on by Reagan uh, in the 80s, it's clear, and even one of Nixon's advisors has stated, you know, the impetus behind those laws was not to protect public health or public safety. It was really to criminalize Black Americans um, and the anti-war left. But even looking back to, to other times in American history where we have criminalized drug use, 
Um, starting in the late 19th century, we banned opium really because of anti-Chinese sentiment um, and wanting to target Chinese Americans. And then, of course, when you move on to the 1930s and the Marijuana Tax Act, Anslinger, who was the drafter of that law, again, has made it very clear, very obvious from his statements, from the legislative history, that that law was designed to target black and brown Americans, to target communities of color. And so when you think about the war on drugs as a public health initiative or a public safety initiative or a criminal justice initiative, it has been an abject failure, right? It, we've sunk billions of dollars into enforcing these laws that have had no benefit on public health or public safety. Um, they've devastated countless lives and with no real positive things to show for it. But if you look at the war on drugs as a tool of racial animus, as a tool to criminalize communities of color, then it's been a huge success. And we certainly see that play out today um, with the ramifications of these laws when we look at the disproportionate effect on communities of color. Right now, Black Americans are almost four times more likely than white Americans to be arrested for marijuana possession, despite equal rates of usage. And when you look forward into the criminal legal system from arrest to sentencing to getting charged and getting a lengthy sentence of incarceration, those disproportionalities are only exacerbated. So about 75% of Americans that are currently incarcerated for drug possession are Black Americans. And so again, it's, it's very clear this is based in fact that the war on drugs has always been a tool of racial control. And convictions of cannabis possession impact folks beyond just serving their sentence. Can you speak to the long-term effects and some of the challenges that formerly incarcerated people face upon reentry into society? So unfortunately, we really do not provide the resources and the tools that someone needs when they're coming home from, re from incarceration. We actually set up a lot of barriers to successfully reentering. Of when you come out of prison, you literally have the clothes on your back you generally don't have any money or a very small amount of money. You don't even have a license. And you have to immediately go find stable housing, go find stable employment, or you will be in violation of your parole or your probation. And of course, when you have a criminal record, especially if you have a felony offense, it's very difficult to secure housing, to get employment, to even get bank loans. And so, of course, the system is sort of designed for failure. And that's why we see incredibly high recidivism rates in this country. Um, nearly two-thirds of individuals re-entering will be reincarcerated within three years of release. And so that just shows you, again, you know, that does not mean that two-thirds of people coming out deserve to be reincarcerated. It means that we have set up a system that is designed to fail those that have been impacted by our criminal legal system. And 
to that end, I mean, incarceration impacts more than just the folks that are being incarcerated. Can you share with listeners how communities at large are impacted? Yeah, and I see this day in and day out in my work. Unfortunately, my work does not really end with my client. I get very connected with the families of the individuals who are suffering from being incarcerated. And it, of course, impacts those families and particularly the children of those that are incarcerated. Of course, that comes with so much trauma and just dealing with losing a parent, losing a primary earner in the household. And unfortunately, we see that the impacts of our criminal legal system are really intergenerational. If you have an incarcerated parent, you are much more likely yourself to be impacted by our criminal legal system. And so, of course, you can see how one not even, you know, one person being incarcerated, one arrest record can spiral and affect not just entire families, but entire communities. It's, it's interesting. Speaking of that, we actually uh, spoke with Bernard Noble who served seven years of a 13 year sentence for cannabis possession. And, you know, upon learning that I was flabbergasted, like, Oh my goodness. And I I think it was for the equivalent of uh, two joints worth of possession. Um, But then I was on your site. And I saw that there are folks that have received life sentences for possession. I mean, how that blew my mind. How, how common are these long sentences for possession of cannabis? So Bernard Noble was a case in the state of Louisiana. And unfortunately, Louisiana, like a lot of southern states, has some of the harshest drug laws still on the books. And things like Louisiana's habitual offender law which is the state equivalent of our federal three strikes law, are typically the reasons that you see these really egregious sentences and sometimes even life sentences for even just simple possession. And so in that case, I believe it was three instances of drug possession. But because it had happened those three or four times, He then was flagged as a habitual offender under Louisiana law and got that, you know, over a decade sentence for marijuana possession. And we've certainly seen that, unfortunately, in Louisiana, where we've had two clients who have gotten life sentences. Luckily, they've both since been released. Um, But for just possession of marijuana because of that habitual offender law and Things like mandatory minimums work the same way to really exacerbate these sentences. Um, And so in those instances, you could have someone who's a first-time nonviolent marijuana offender who gets a life sentence. That happened to one of our constituents, Craig Cecil. He now works with us on our reentry team, helps folks that are coming home. Um, But he was first-time nonviolent offender, and his offense was that he was repairing trucks for long-haul truckers that were shipping marijuana. And he got wrapped up in a conspiracy charge and hit with a kingpin enhancement despite having a very low-level role. And so the mandatory minimums tied to that left him with a life sentence. Luckily, his sentence was commuted. Again, he's now working with us and helping others in that situation. Um, But you can see the ways in which the system is completely broken in that you have people who their only crime is that they've used 
an illegal substance and they're getting hit with more egregious, longer sentences than violent offenders. Can you explain for listeners um, what mandatory minimums are and, and what the three what the federal three strikes law is for, for folks that maybe aren't familiar? Yeah. And so the federal three strikes law is that if you have three felony offenses, and that can be either at the state or federal level, um, you get hit with a sentencing enhancement. And so you'll get a longer sentence if you have three felonies on your record. Um, And I mentioned that state-federal dichotomy because it's actually a very tragic part of what we see very often. One example is one of our Constituents, again, luckily now released, now with us at LPP as a fellow. But Corvain Cooper, he had two prior state marijuana felony charges and then got a third federal offense and so got a life sentence. Those two prior state felony charges, during his sentence, he was incarcerated in 2013 In that time, of course, California completely legalized and downgraded those offenses. So those felony offenses became misdemeanors under state law. But that didn't change his life sentence, despite the change in law in California, because he was serving a federal sentence. So that's just further injustice of the federal three strikes law and how that can really work to give someone a life sentence who is completely undeserving. Mandatory minimums are a basically requirement that takes discretion away from judges. So when judges are sentencing people, if they have a certain charge that they've pled guilty to or that they've been found guilty on, the judge has no ability to give them a lesser sentence. So the judge might see... In the case of, you know, someone like Craig Cecil, this first time nonviolent offender um, doesn't really have an active role in this conspiracy. um, But he, because of the charge that Craig got, has no discretion and is forced to give him a life sentence. And we have definitely seen also things like mandatory minimums and three strikes laws and habitual offenders laws disproportionately affect communities of color as well, so that the people that are subject to those kinds of enhancements are by and large black and brown Americans. And now we're seeing in states legalization, recreational legalization. What does in that context of kind of the cannabis industry and and that now, you know, money's being made legally, both private, you know, for private benefactors, but also through tax revenue for the government, what does restorative justice look like in that context? Like thinking about the fact that there are still so many people incarcerated for this crime that is legal in so much of our country. And I think that really is the height of injustice that at the same time that individuals, mostly white men, are profiting millions of dollars off of this now legal industry, we still have mostly black and brown Americans incarcerated sometimes for life sentences. And even the states themselves are bringing in millions or billions of dollars um, into state coffers at the same time that people are still sitting in state prisons. 
And so I think that has been the biggest failure on the part of states that have legalized is that they are not providing enough or any, in some cases, retroactive relief so that by law, we are automatically releasing those that are still in prison for cannabis offenses, but also that we have to automatically clear the records of those that might have a cannabis offense on their records because as we talked about, that can impact your life for the rest of your life in myriad ways. Um, and so we're starting to see more and more states recognize that including restorative justice provisions has to be part and parcel with legalization. But I really don't think any state has gone far enough to truly repair the damages that are so widespread of the war on drugs and of the criminalization of cannabis. For states that have legalized and don't have any of those provisions, what are some of the policies that you would, if you could impart on people to advocate for and and try to uh, get passed at the state level, uh, what would some of those policies look like and, and how can we advance those forward? So the first would be automatic expungement. And so expungement is not just the clearing of someone's record, but actually destroying the record so that it can no longer affect someone's ability to get a job, someone's ability to find housing, um, all the ways in which a criminal record can be a hindrance in someone's life. But the key is that it is automatic. So what we've seen and what we saw in a lot of the earlier states that legalized was that they had a petition-based process. So in the state that I was coming from, um, Massachusetts, one of the first states to legalize, they made it a, a very simplified petition form for someone to fill out to get an expungement for a marijuana offense. But unfortunately, we see a incredibly low amount of eligible individuals actually take advantage of those kinds of petitions. You might need to hire a lawyer, which of course costs money. You have to access your criminal records, which costs money. Um, you have to know that you're eligible for these laws. You have to know that these laws exist. You have to know how to navigate this process and understand some of the legalese that are built into these forms. And of course, if English is not your first language, that's going to be even more difficult. So we really need to ensure that the burden is on the state to automatically identify people that are deserving of this kind of relief and then do the work of clearing and destroying those records. So that's the first thing. The second thing would be really broad resentencing, again, for anyone that is in prison for a nonviolent marijuana offense. And that piece is a little trickier. Um, we've seen very few states try to do this, and the ones that have have been for a very limited class of individuals. Um, and that's because, again, the system is really designed to keep people in prison and put them in prison for a very long time. So it's very rare that we see people incarcerated for simple possession. They have other offenses. Usually if someone is gets a charge for selling, distributing, or manufacturing marijuana, you'll also get hit with a money laundering charge or other financial crimes or a fraud charge. And so it's not enough to just say we can only find the nonviolent marijuana offenders, which that word in and of itself, nonviolent, um, is not a true dichotomy in the criminal legal system. And so we're excluding a lot of 
really deserving people when we narrowly tailor those laws to only affect people that might have a simple marijuana possession charge. Now, what about the state of New York? I think when they, and I'll, I'll, I'll own, I, I don't fully understand the intricacies of this, but when they passed legalization, they have some provi- uh, something that, that so much of sales has to go back into communities impacted or, or something to that effect. Is is that enough? Is that or or is there should that be strengthened? Is that I'd be curious your your thoughts on that policy. So I think that's one piece of it, right? Of course, community reinvestment because as we talked about, when someone gets arrested or is sent to prison for a marijuana offense, it impacts entire communities. And so rebuilding the communities that have been disproportionately impacted by these laws is crucial. And setting up opportunities for those communities to access the now legal industry is equally crucial. Um, So that has to be a part of legalization along with the criminal justice provisions. And I think what's interesting is that so often we see those community reinvestment funds go back to things like you know, public safety education, you know, impaired driving education, funding for schools, which are all great and important things. But when we talk about reinvesting those funds to the people that have been most impacted by these laws, it should be going towards helping disproportionately impacted communities get into the industry, ensuring that they have access to the right legal resources to get their records expunged, to be released from prison, I think those things have to take priority. And that's what the funding should be devoted to um, at this stage. That makes a lot of sense. What moral obligation does the legal cannabis industry have to supporting the communities that the war on drugs have impacted? I think the legal cannabis industry has a huge moral imperative to give back. I think if anyone is profiting off of the now legal cannabis industry, you should be doing all that you can to right the wrongs of prohibition and to solve a lot of the issues that we've talked about. I think if we took the collective funding and the collective brain power of the leaders of this cannabis industry and every operator in the now legal cannabis industry, we could solve for a lot of these issues. But I think the problem is that we're relying on you know governments that are overburdened, under-resourced. And so we really have to rely on this private industry to give back and ensure that we're working towards these solutions. And sorry if you can hear my dogs just barrel down the stairs and now they're attacking each other. (laughs) No worries. What are a few ways that uh, folks can get involved and and support um, you know, support the Last Prisoner Project and, and all the work that you're doing? So we make it really easy. We have a page on our website. If you go to lastprisonerproject.org slash take action, and there you can find all kinds of campaigns um, that you can currently support. So we've got a federal campaign calling on the Biden administration to grant categorical clemency for anyone federally incarcerated for marijuana offenses We've got various state-level campaigns, Um, and so you can sign on to support petitions. You can contact your lawmakers. And one of the best ways, I think, that the public can 
get engaged and really make an impact on this issue is that we have a letter writing program and we've got about 100 constituents across the country that want to hear from you, want to know that people are fighting for them, want to know that they're not forgotten. And getting those letters, I know, is the best part of a lot of my clients' day. Um, Getting mail call and getting so many letters from LPP supporters um, is hugely beneficial for their mental health and wellness. And we really need to do all we can to support those most impacted. So if you're up for it, head to our website. We've got a letter writing guide and a directory. You can learn more about our constituents and make a new friend and make a difference in someone's life. to level up through action and impact. This segment is meant to provide you with ways you can get involved in a local and global level with one challenge mentioned in the episode. You can do all of what follows or choose your own adventure. If it feels overwhelming, I'm encouraging you to listen for one action in the following listed actions to give a try. If we all make even the smallest of changes, you would be amazed at how it can ripple out. Be informed. Learn about the business practices of your favorite brands. As a business owner, look into your supply chain and don't purchase any products that come from prison labor. Keep an eye out for legislation in your area and support automatic expungement of records. As an employer, create opportunities for folks that were formerly incarcerated by implementing open hiring at your business or reducing barriers to employment. Check out our conversation with Grayson Bakery to learn more about open hiring. If you're participating in the legal cannabis industry, support Black-owned businesses. Get in touch with your local nonprofit working to support the formerly incarcerated. For more ways to get involved, check out the show notes at responsiblydifferent.com. Next time on Responsibly Different, I sit down with Patagonia's East Coast Environmental Coordinator, Rebecca Goodstein. Values are a really hard thing to quantify, and being a B Corp makes sure that every year we take a minute to just look at ourselves, keep ourselves accountable, not only to the folks that work at Patagonia, but also to our customers and our community members and our nonprofit partners to make sure what, what we're saying that we're doing, we're actually doing. So it's a, it's a good opportunity to just check in and say, these are, the, these are our core values. Are we, are we holding true to that? And how can we quantify that? And that's where, um, I mean, B Corp is amazingly helpful in the way they, they help us look at that and actually translate it into numbers. Till next time, be responsibly different. This is a production of Deergo Collective. Claire Clausen is our project manager. Jeremy Glass is our writer. The music is an original score by our very own Kevin Oates. And I, Ben Marine, am your host and editor. To learn more about Deergo Collective, visit deergocollective.com.